Uh, my name is Naftali Bernstein, from Young Israel Cleveland. I guess I have the honor of uh, sharing the closing session of this uh, conference. just want to uh, express my Akarsatov to Pesach and to Aaron for a very special program. We've learned a lot of things in the last uh, 36 or so hours that I'm sure will help us in our positions in our Abanis. Today, this last session, we're going to be dealing with a very important issue, a very serious issue, and that's the issue of uh, counseling the contemporary Orthodox Jewish family. So as you can imagine, has many implications in terms of direct shalom bias between husband and wife, dealing with problems with children, dealing with career issues, and many, many other issues that can go on in a family. Sometimes it involves the Rabbanim themselves giving counseling, and sometimes it involves the Rabbanim giving guidance so that the family involved will, in fact, get the proper counseling that is needed. We have uh, two very special speakers. Uh, we're going to uh, switch the order from what it says in the program, and we'll save Rabbi David Cohen for last. Uh, first, I'm going to introduce the, the first speaker. The first speaker's name is Dr. Ben-Sion Sarotskin. Uh, Dr. Sarotskin is a, a Muslim of Yeshivas near Israel in Baltimore and uh, has received his doctorate in clinical psychology from Yeshiva University. Uh, Dr. Sarotskin lived in Eretz Israel for several years, where he served as a psychologist at the Youth Aliyah Psychology Clinic, he also served as a psychologist in the Israel Defense Forces as part of his Army Reserve duties. Since 1985, Dr. Sarutskin has maintained a private practice in psychotherapy with adolescents and adults in Brooklyn, New York. Dr. Sarutskin has published articles in professional journals such as Clinical Psychology Review, Psychotherapy, and the Psychotherapy Bulletin, and also in Jewish periodicals such as the Jewish Observer, the Jewish Parent Connection, and Parent to Parent Magazine. Uh, it is my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Sarutskin. Thank you very much, Roy Bernstein. Uh, it is a high honor and a serious responsibility to share the podium with Rodolfo Konschlita. Besides the obvious reasons, as a psychologist, I'm especially cognizant of the role Rodolfo has played as both the Rav of Nefesh and of Ohel in promoting and guiding the mental health services in the, in the from community. Today, I will present an overview of the type of problems a therapist encounters in the contemporary Orthodox family and the relationship between family dynamics and emotional disorders. I will also present my thoughts regarding the role of a Rav in the prevention and identification of emotional disorders among members of his community. Last but certainly not least, I want to take advantage of Rodov's presence to raise some halachic and ashkafish issues that come up in therapeutic work. Today's, issue, today's session is dedicated to the issue of counseling the contemporary Orthodox family. I'm certain that everyone in this audience is well familiar with the challenges facing the contemporary Orthodox family. The rising tide of divorce and the alarming increase in teenagers falling by the wayside is only the most visible and obvious part of the problem. When a child has a difficulty, whether it's an emotional problem, or a behavioral problem, and they come from a divorced home, so then we say, oh, we understand he comes from a broken home. However, there are obviously many tensions and disharmonies in a home that are not obvious to an outside observer. To say nothing of a home which has everything except warmth, acceptance, and emotional support, where we are likely to be oblivious to the role the family plays in a child's problems. In my experience, 
The overwhelming majority of emotional disorders have the roots in disordered families and disruptions in the parent-child relationship, anywhere on a continuum. In the contemporary Orthodox home, I believe that it is the rising standards in all areas of our life, both in Ruchnius and in Gashmias, that has made it all too frequent for children today to feel that they are a disappointment to their parents. It follows, therefore, that any effort to strengthen the emotional foundations of the Jewish family will have a positive ripple effect of major proportion. And certainly Rabbanim are in the forefront of the effort to strengthen the Jewish family and, and are usually the first ones to address the problems that arise in the family. So the following is a brief overview of the most frequent issues I see in my practice. I see many depressed patients. In spite of the popularity of the term chemical imbalance, and in spite of the fact that antidepressant medication is sometimes an important part of the treatment of a depressed patient, it does not follow that there are no psychological reasons for the depression. In fact, in the vast majority of cases, if you would know everything about the history and the life of the per depressed person, it would be obvious to you why they are depressed. The majority of the depressed people I see have grown up extremely unhappy, either because of a lack of shalom bias in their homes, or because they had parents who were extremely critical or controlling. Others have had social difficulties or felt excessively guilty over normal childhood misbehaviors, but did not have anyone or they were not close enough to the parents to speak to them openly about it, and the problem just grew. A significant number of my depressed patients were sexually molested as children by relatives or other authority figures. These experiences create chemical imbalances. They're not the result of chemical imbalances. What is the initial intervention, for instance, if a Rav sees a depressed person in the community? It's very important to note that people are extremely reluctant to share the information regarding their early life, even with the people to whom they turn for help. There's many reasons for this. Firstly, they're very embarrassed. It's the nature of children, especially, or adults thinking back to their childhood, to feel responsible for anything that was wrong in their family life, regardless how obvious it is to us that it wasn't their fault. Often, they, it's even painful for them to admit it to themselves. Almost every patient that I see, when I ask him originally about their early family life, they always tell me everything was wonderful. Practically always. And then it's only when you ask very pointed questions, very specific questions, that you find out that there were problems. In fact, there was a very interesting study. A psychologist in Western Australia came up with this idea. We know that a hundred... Practically 100% of sexual molesters were molested themselves as children. Yet only, to the best of our knowledge, about only 50% of those who are molested become molesters. So the question is, if you can figure out the difference, why those who do not become molesters, you can help other people. And she found that the most statistically significant factor differentiating these two groups are the ones who realize what a terrible thing was done to them are the ones who are least likely to repeat it. But since it is the nature of most children to minimize what was done to them, it is for that reason we have the well-known phenomena that most abused children become abused adults, or at least all too many. A related phenomena, the obvious trauma in the person's life is very often not the major cause of the current difficulty. And the reason for that is because for the obvious traumas in a person's life, the person receives emotional support. For the traumas that nobody knows about, obviously they cannot receive support. Many years ago, I saw a young lady, talking about Shaduchim. Many years ago, I saw a young lady who had gone out with countless boys, 
and have been going out with one young man for many, many months and could not, as they say today, commit. And she spoke to many Hashanah people and everybody assumed they knew the reason. This young lady, unfortunately, had become a Yasayma from both of her parents at a very young age. And everybody understood that, no, Hashanah was such a history, it's hard for her to get emotionally involved with people. But she, and everybody advised her to get engaged with this young man. She was emotionally incapable of, of following through on that, and she ended up in therapy. And I remember, I, I said, I felt that there's something going on here that explains this that we don't know. That explanation that everybody assumed did not seem sufficient. And then she finally told me that she was sexually molested by an older relative for years, starting from, I think, like first grade. And of course, nobody had a clue. So paradoxically, her problem of being a Yashayma, as painful as it was, was the least of her problems because she received a tremendous amount of emotional support from the community, from relatives and friends. Unfortunately, for the problem that no one knew about, she never received any emotional support. Another common problem is the problem of rebellious teenagers. Unfortunately, it's becoming a growing percentage of my practice. I don't have enough hours in the, the day to see all the ones that come my way. It's in my experience that when the children or adolescents are acting out in a serious manner, then there's a very good chance that their basic emotional needs are not being met by their family. It does not mean necessarily that the parents are abusive, although that is unfortunately a possibility, but does mean that the parents are either unaware of the importance of their children's emotional needs or unable for various reasons to be responsive to those needs. Now many other factors have been mentioned in various conferences as a cause for these problems, what they call risk factors, the very popular influence of the media, learning disabilities, oppositional defined disorder, genetic predispositions, chemical imbalance, hashkafic uncertainties, etc. All those factors are certainly important and often need to be dealt with. But in my opinion, they are never sufficient to drive a child off the derech. It is too painful a process for any of those reasons to be sufficient. In fact, many of those factors are the result of inadequate emotional support at home, or worse, rather than the cause. Other factors, for, in, for instance, learning disabilities, of course, make it much more difficult for parents to give the proper emotional support to the child, because it's a more difficult child. Just like it's more difficult to raise a child who, has a, who doesn't sleep, is a finicky eater or sleeper. And is the disruption that that problem causes to the family, to the relationship between the parent and the child, is what drives the child off the derech. Incidentally, oppositional defined disorder, in my opinion, is a classical example of a descriptive term masquerading as explanatory terminology. There's sort of a, 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 a assumption that there's something in the child's brain causing it to be oppositional defined. I don't think there's any scientific evidence for that. It's a descriptive term. The child is oppositional defined probably because he's very unhappy. Now, it's very important for Rabbanim, I think, especially since they are at the forefront and often deals with, deal with families, and they, of course, try to improve the parenting skills of the parents. It's important to realize that the problem when parents are having difficulty with parenting, it's not a matter of chasarin and yediyah and certain parenting techniques. That's really the problem. There's usually something problematic with the underlying assumptions and attitudes that the parents have. For instance, a common source of stress in many from homes is the parent's expectation that young children sit at the Shabbos table throughout the meal. A very prominent mashgiach wrote in his sefer that it is a total, totally unrealistic expectation to expect a young child to sit at the table throughout the meal. 
and he severely chastises parents who try to force a child to do so, and he says, Asidim sadin for causing the child to associate Shabbos with unpleasant memories. In my own practice, I often find a attribution of malicious intent when I speak to the parents of troubled adolescents. When I ask, I always ask the parents, why do you think your child is having these problems? Why is, do you think he's being rebellious? And my hair stands up when I hear the answers. The most recent one I heard last week, a father told me, because he's a self-indulgent truant. I have a, a long col a, a collection of these comments. I think in the handout that you have, I describe in one of the footnotes some of the things I've heard. When I speak to the youngster, I see a troubled youngster who is suffering terribly from his or her problems, while the parent, unfortunately, often sees a manipulative, malicious teenager who is enjoying his or her power. I assume they mean the power to be miserable. What is the initial intervention when a, a, um, a rather in the community speaks to a troubled, a rebellious adolescent? The first point I believe is important to make it clear to these, to these youngsters that there's an emotionally meaningful reason for their inappropriate behavior. Of course, not that we're condoning the behavior, but that there's an emotionally meaningful reason for it. Telling these youngsters that their behavior is a result of their unrestrained tivus is most often inaccurate unless it happens to reflect their educational background, and always unproductive. Likewise, giving Musser, especially before truly understanding the causes and meaning of the behavior, will only cause further harm. Just the other day, a manal of a yeshiva called me to consult about a 14, 15-year-old boy who was a very, he was a very well-behaved, studious boy until a few months ago when he suddenly started becoming a terror at home. Only at home. He was still behaving in yeshiva. At home, he was acting totally in a ludicrous manner terrorizing the house. The principal was a very warm, caring person, sat with the youngster, tried to get him to talk. The youngster, as is not unusual, refused to talk about anything about his home life. And the principal, as he told me later, because he felt he had to say something, gave him a Musa shmuz about Kibbut Ava'ain. As he told me, he realized amid shmuz that this wasn't going to do anything productive. Another job, another task of a rav, I believe, in my opinion, it is often necessary to discourage parents from following the well-meaning advice to institute tough love. It used to be very popular, Baruch Hashem, it's less popular today. I think the mahalach with these youngsters, I think, as far as I know, this is what all the G'daylam have recommended. As the, there's a famous Chazaynish, I mean, the, it was originally in the, written in the Maiseish, as recently in, the, in that uh, special issue of the Jewish Observer, they said they have the story in there, where there was a young a parent who had a child who became a Mechal Shabbos before Hester Rahman al-Litzlan and he came over to the father and he asked him to buy him a car. Shikopel in the time of the Chazanish, but that's what he asked for a car. And the father was agreeable. Just one condition. He should promise not to drive it on Shabbos. And the youngster refused to agree and there was a further deterioration in their relationship. The Chazanish heard the Maisa and sent a message to the father, it's Kedai for him to buy the car without any conditions for the youngster, for his son, in order to perhaps in that way improve the relationship. Prevention. What can a Rav do to prevent some of these problems? The Rav is in a unique position to influence parents to adopt more emotionally healthy parenting attitudes. I find it shocking that many from youngsters have acquired from their home lives an image of Hashem that is alarmingly similar to that of the Eivda Avaydazar, Rahman Wotzlan. They view Hashem as capricious and vindictive, 
similar to a schoolyard bully who looks for every excuse to beat up his victims. Such youngsters experience Havaizus Hashem as a matter of appeasing Hashem rather than serving Him. It should not be surprising that such youngsters either become perfectionistic in a desperate attempt to appease Hashem, more on that issue in a moment, or give up trying and abandon Yiddishkeit altogether. As a religious authority and community leader, a Rav can encourage parents to be more attentive to their children's emotional needs and to present Yiddishkeit to their children as rather than as harsh, punitive, and unforgiving. More importantly, since children as adults are unable to conceptualize Hashem and need to rely on familiar imagery such as Avinu, parents need to be informed that their general attitude and behavior toward their children creates the template for their children's concept of Hashem. Now the advice of Rabbanim in these matters carry much more weight than that of psychologists who are anyway suspected of being so open-minded that their brains fell out. What are some of the halachic issues that I would hope that the Rav can address? When, when a therapist ascertains that indeed a child's acting out is a result of some a faulty parenting, anywhere in the range from overt abuse to a more subtle issue of a lack of emotional sensitivity, the issue of kibbut ava'im could become a complication. As I mentioned before, children tend to blame themselves, regardless of how overtly abusive their parents are, even in those cases, children will blame themselves for whatever disharmony exists in their home. This negatively impacts their self-esteem and their self-confidence, thereby causing intensification of the troubling symptoms, which, of course, further intensifies a parent's negative reaction and you have a vicious cycle. It therefore becomes therapeutically necessary, for, in my opinion, for the troubled, at times, for the troubled youngster to understand the root cause of his behavior. Not to look at himself as stama grubba baltaiva, but to understand that there are emotional reasons due to things that happened in his past that are the source of his current negative behavior. Likewise, it is sometimes necessary for a child to become more assertive with his parents so he can avoid future abuse. Now, many people feel very uncomfortable with this approach because they feel they're very concerned, as we of course should be, for the sensitivity of the parents, the parents who are already suffering from the terrible tragedy of having a child who is going, has gone off the derech, and we certainly don't want to cause them any additional pain. But it, it does amaze me why we don't have a comparable regard for the child's feelings. The child also feels guilty. Somebody, the buck got to stop somewhere. And if it isn't the parents, then the child feels that they are totally at fault. Most of the children that I see, even the ones who walk in with a chip on their shoulder and pretend that nothing bothers them, it doesn't take much scratching of the surface to see that they are totally overwhelmed with undeserved guilt and shame. Now, in my clinical experience, taking these steps most often ultimately improves the youngster's relationship with his or her parents. However, in the short term, there's usually increased conflict. And I would like to hear the Rob's feelings whether this creates a problems of Kibbut Avayim. Personally, when I speak to parents, I'm amazed that actually parents, once they get past the initial difficult stages and see the improvement of the relationship, are usually very thankful, and it is they who have pushed me. I've avoided speaking on this topic in public because, I have, because it's somewhat controversial, but I have many parents who have benefited from this approach have urged me to do to speak in public. I've often told parents 
who often, uh, parents are abusive, are usually the first ones to wave the flag of Kibbut Avreim, the mitzvah, and I have a response from Rabbi Yudah Chassid in the Sefer Chassidim, where he asks the question, why does it say, Ish avivim tiro? Ish is singular, tiro is plural. It says the Sefer Chassidim, Shehaein va'av b'chlal tiro, shelo yachisu esaben kokach, shelo yuchal yisapeg achi yimro behem. The mitzvah of Kibbut Avreim is just as much a chiv on the parents, than on the child, as it is on the child. Another halachic issue, or ashkafic one perhaps, is when one spouse is abusive and the other one is not. Most often in such cases I find the reasonable parent will try to appease his or her spouse at any cost, including the cost of the emotional health of their children. They often rationalize this approach with emphasis on shalom bias, although it's usually just their difficulty in being assertive. My own personal feeling on this is but just like no person would tolerate his spouse encouraging their child to be mechal Shabbos, shalom bayis or no shalom bayis, I don't see why there should be any reason to tolerate abuse toward the children. Perhaps there's even a din this in such cases. I would certainly like to hear the Rav's thoughts on this. Another issue that I deal with very frequently, which is the subject of the handouts that were given out, is when children grow up feeling that they are a disappointment to their parents, they tend to go to one of two, they either become rebellious, as we just spoke about, or the flip side of the coin is they try to become perfect in a desperate attempt to find favor in their parents' eyes and in Hashem's eyes. A significant percentage of the adolescents I see today, both boys and girls, suffer from perfectionism. The actual symptoms vary. They could be depressed as a reaction to the frustration of constantly falling short of their unrealistic goals. They could be obsessive-compulsive, I see an increasing number of youngsters with OCD where they try to be perfect in regards to self-control and, or, and self-restraint or they are narcissistic when they need to see themselves as perfect. The common denominator is the feeling that anything less than perfect is shameful and intolerable. The causes, again, I do not believe the causes for this are chemical imbalances. I believe what the cause is when all these children or, or adolescents, or I see this in adults too, have a terrible feeling of defectiveness. They feel that they are totally defective and the only way to wipe away that shame is by being perfect. Often in the background what you find are parents who are excessively critical, who react to minor infractions as other parents would react to major transgressions. What it does is it destroys a child's sense of perspective. If you get yelled at for spilling milk, there's a mother who told me, I just reminded myself now, there's a mother who told me, she tells me, she recalled how she slapped her four-year-old son, if I'm not mistaken, across the face for putting his hand in the filling of the pie that she was making. And then when her, her uh, six-year-old son said, Mommy, what are you doing? He got chastised for being a chutzpahnik. So if putting a hand in a pie for a four-year-old is, is, is a most major transgression, how does a child differentiate between things that are truly terrible and those that are only minorly so. Another precursor to perfectionism is when a youngster is nichshalen and avera at a young age, often in eighth, ninth grade, often of a sexual nature, and he has no one that he feels comfortable to discuss it with. The feeling of self-loathing makes him all the more prone to be nichshal again and again with a corresponding desperate attempt to wipe away the shame via perfectionism. What is the initial intervention here? The difficulty with this disorder is that it is very unlikely to catch it at an early stage. Unlike depression, which we could be sensitive to if you notice a child who seems to be unusually unhappy, this 
this order can easily fool us. When a, when a Rav observes a youngster striving for ever higher level of Ruchnius, could he be blamed for encouraging the youngster in his endeavor? It takes a sharp eye in psychological sophistication to differentiate between a healthy pursuit of excellence and the unhealthy quest for perfection. I think we need to be keep our eyes open for erratic patterns of religiosity, extreme positions, or glaring inconsistencies in order to realize there's probably some unhealthy underlying motivation. Now, a Rav can play a central role in promoting healthy growth and development in Ruchnius by emphasizing the necessity for emotional health and Simcha as a foundation for growth in Ruchnius. The difficulty we have today is that because Baruch Hashem, we live in a time of rising expectations in Ruchnius and rising standards, but correspondingly there's a difficulty of people being less and less happy with themselves. Fortunately, a few months ago, the Chaynan Ladam Das showed, helped me see something that Rav Hutner, Rechet Sadek Levracha, wrote in the Sefer Hazikaran, for the Pachad Yitzchak, something unbelievable, Mamisha Gem. I don't know why I never, nobody's spoken about her, maybe I just missed out on it. He says, I believe it's in Dafain Aleph, if my memory serves me right. It's good to look inside because of his special language. But he writes like this, he says, the Teva of a person is that when he becomes an Ish Bal Madrega, when he starts having Shi'ifas for growth, for spiritual growth, then he starts losing his simcha for being a Pasha Tiyid. He says, but that's a terrible thing. You cannot allow that to happen. Because the simcha of being a Pasha Tiyid on Madregis is not only a prerequisite for becoming a Yid with Madregis, it is also a, 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 it's an ongoing foundation for being a Yid with Madregis. And that's what we need to emphasize, that the basic simcha has to be, the basic simcha of being a Yid has to be the foundation for the growth in Ruchniyas. Likewise, in regards to the unreasonable guilt feelings that many people suffer from, a Rav, I believe, is a perfect person to give the message that guilt is too precious a commodity to waste on situations where you did nothing wrong. And even if you did do something wrong, your guilt feelings should be proportionate to how terrible the thing that you did was. The halachic issue that I find that often comes up is that when somebody does mitzvahs or other ruchnias activities, for unhealthy reasons, for unhealthy emotional reasons, when you treat them and they get emotionally healthier, ostensibly it looks like they're becoming less from. Many of the behaviors that they did before for the unhealthy reasons, they stop doing. The question is, again, if that's if it's okay, or for other reasons, I would certainly like to hear the Rav's comments on that. Another common problem that we face today more than ever is the problem of homosexuality. I think this is related to the Indian of Shaduchan that we spoke about before. This is sometimes the unstated subtext of why some young men have a hard time getting married. Sometimes the therapist is the only one who knows the reason. The most crucial factor in helping these people is not to buy into the liberal party line that there are genetic and biological causes for homosexuality. There's absolutely no scientific evidence for this. Yet many in the fruit community even have accepted this as truth. It was always well documented at least before the gay right terrorists silenced the scientific community, that homosexuality most often results from family situations that disrupt the normal development of gender identity. The most common pattern is uninvolved, cold and distant fathers and over-involved controlling mothers. This present, prevents the boy from comfortably identifying with his masculinity. Homosexuality is a problem in gender identity and not a problem of sexual attraction. These youngsters have to be seen in psychotherapy by therapists experienced in treating these problems from this perspective. 
There's, there was a uh, secular organization called NARTH uh, that was very active in this area. They also have a website. But now, Baruch Hashem, there's a firm organization called Jonah that was just recently formed. Anybody's interested in the phone number of their hotline, I can give you later. A few words on Shaduchim. I know we just spoke about it, but I just have a few psychological perspectives. Obviously, one of the major problems is that, uh, that uh, people, young men and women who say they don't know, they can't be sure, they went out with a person only 45 times, they don't know for sure how they feel. One of the sources of the problem, I believe, is there's a chazaynish. You know, the, the famous medrash, it always amazed me, like, what's the purpose of a baskel that no one hears? You know, there's more big mice of the baskel that the chachamim heard. But a baskel that no one hears, what's the purpose of it? Baruch Hashem, then, a few years ago, I saw Bradan from Chazaynish, that he says that if somebody goes out with a shidduch, and he has, and the lave is night to lechiev, he has positive feelings toward the, that young man or young lady, that is the baskel. Oh, so we could hear the baskel. The child is, why does so many people not hear it? Because the baskol is a feeling. You have to be tuned into that station. Or you have to give credence to that, to those feelings. Here again, the family dynamics, I find, often play an important role. If a child grows up in a home where his feelings are not recognized, are not identified, are not taken seriously, are not respected, or even worse, sometimes they're made fun of, or denied, then they don't have the most necessary tool for making the type of decisions that rely so heavily on feelings. The other frequent problem is when, especially young men, have exacting standards regarding looks, regarding, regardless of their own assets in that department. It reminds me once my Mashgiach, read the Shidduch once for a young man, and when he came back from one of the Bachrim, he came back, the Mashgiach asked him, no, how did it go? He says, eh, yeah, it was very good, you know, she has these miles and those miles and these miles, but I don't think so. What's the problem? No, finally, he had no choice. He had to say, you know, the looks department at this felt. So he said, what do you think you are, a movie star? <laughs> Why does this a problem exist? Of course, we can blame the media and Hollywood and everything else, but I think there, and that's also true, but I think there's also another Nakuda. Unfortunately, many of these youngsters grew up in homes where the Chitzenius reigned supreme. And that's even when there was a house full of Ruchnias, because as we all know, it's no Chiddush, the Ruchnias can also be Chitzenius. And there's a specific mechanism that I think the Stipler talks about. The Stipler in the Kilos Yaakov and in, in, in Yavamis, in the new editions, it's in, I think, Memdalit. He asks, why isn't there a din of Gneva's Das? In, in, in Mecca Chememkar, even if you, if you aren't totally honest, even if it's not a type of, a, of, of an imperfection that is Mevatel uh, the Mekach, there's still a din of Gneva's Das. While by Shaduchim, all the gedolim, you know, I'm asking that you don't have to be a hundred percent forthcoming with all the information, shall we say? Why is there any of gnevis das? He says says that that when when in an object, if you bought a car and you find the most minor defect, that's not mevatel the mecca, but you mention it to the dealer, and the dealer is a nice guy. He says, no problem. You want another car? Take another one. Take one of the new ones on the lot. Anyone you want, you wouldn't hesitate for a minute to exchange it. The son of Mary's, Mary's his wife, and they're very much in love and have a wonderful relationship, and he finds out that he has some minor defect he didn't know about. And she's asking him to get divorced. What, do you divorce her? Well, because you have a relationship with a person. So the medvar mamurin, when you're capable of having a relationship. I remember one patient, after he was in therapy for a while, and he improved his ability to relate emotionally to people. So he went out with a young girl, with a young lady, and he told me when the first date he liked her a lot, but he said, up the nose is a little too long. 
few comes up, after about two, three dates, he tells me, no, it's a funny thing. After each date, the nose gets shorter. Why? Because he was able to look at her as a whole person. In context, the nose stopped bothering him. When is that possible? If the child grew up in such an environment, if, if, if the child's every minor defect or misbehavior is not blown out of proportion, is not severely criticized, the child learns that even you have to look at everything in context. In the human relations, you, not each prat doesn't stand out. Unfortunately, some children did not grow up in that environment. Every one of their imperfections were highlighted. And I think, therefore, the initial, when, when a Rav speaks to a young man or a young lady who is having a hard time with Shaduchim, and these young men and women are often accused of being too choosy, find out more about the background. You might find out that somebody was too choosy with them. And prevention. Obviously, if you can get parents to be less critical and more attentive to the children's emotional needs, you'll solve both of those problems. One final point about Shaduchim. There's still, amazingly enough, it's still a popular belief among many people that Shaduchim is the cure for all emotional disorders. So I'm here to tell you today that unfortunately, getting married solves only one problem, and that's the problem of being single. It does not solve any other problems. Now, the issue as far as how much to disclose, there's a psychological, besides the halachic aspect that Rav David Cohen spoke about before, there's also a psychological aspect. The biggest problem of disclosure is that a person has not come to terms with it themselves. When somebody comes to terms with their own history and has made peace with it, they know naturally how to disclose. How do you disclose things to a friend? But well, the first time you meet Shalom Aleichem, this time I'm tell you all the problems I went through in my life. Now, of course, you know, you get to know them. As you feel more comfortable with them, you disclose more and more. But that's only the things that you yourself are comfortable disclosing. The things you're not even comfortable disclosing to yourself, then what happens in Shaduchim is like this. Either they don't disclose it, and the girl likes them, but they feel like an imposter, because she likes them only because they haven't told them the most significant thing in their life. Or they don't, or they, or if they do disclose it, they do it with such a pressure that they disclose it like they just dump it on the other person's lap, and of course that's the last day. So helping the person become comfortable with it themselves, and sometimes it's necessary for therapy to do that, is one way to solve that problem. Now, speaking about the rabbinical counseling, I just have a few ideas about it I think could be helpful. I think the most dangerous thing is to avoid a superficial understanding of a problem. A recent example comes to mind. You know, during the summer, there was a poster that was put out by the one most wonderful of organizations, by Hatzalah, that says, there was a picture of a car wreck, and it says, behind every teen fatality is a parent who said yes. On the surface of it, it sounds, you know, okay, it's But if you think about it, anybody who's had experience with this problem knows that such tragic accidents are much more likely to occur to teens whose parents said no too often. So you have to be very careful. And as I've mentioned before, very often, most often, when somebody comes to you for advice, they will not tell you the whole story unless you ask many, many pointed questions. Even when you th- the problem seems to be obvious, or a person is depressed because he lost his job. The question to ask yourself, the unfortunate other people have lost their job. They're all sad, they're unhappy, they're anxious. Most people don't stay in bed for three months because they lost their job. It's not a sufficient explanation. There must have been an underlying vulnerability that makes him react to such an event in such a manner. So it's always important to try to understand the underlying dynamics. Now, unfortunately, I sometimes see patients who have, obviously, have had their problems for many years, and very often, people in the community discourage them from going to therapy. The reasons are many. I would like just to address two or three of them, 
and see what we can do about it. Sometimes it's happened with Rabbanim or Mechanchim that discourage a person from going to therapy because they've had bad experiences with incompetent therapists. Now, in all fields, I assume it might even happen to Rabbanim, sometimes they're incompetent people. So you have to find competent therapists that you feel comfortable with. Sometimes people, some people feel that therapy makes the problem worse. That's initially true, of course. Surgery also makes a problem worse. Most people, the day after surgery, feel a whole lot worse than the day before surgery. So, of course, therapy opens up a lot of problems that have been shoved under the rug, and therefore, initially, the situation can look worse. Some rabbanim fear loss of ashpa and the person they're working with, if they send them to therapy, then you simply need to find a therapist who understands that a rub is an important partner and not a competitor. Another problem is very often... Because the people don't reveal the extent of their symptoms, very often it seems to the Rav that he can handle the problem himself. It doesn't seem to be just a serious problem. Again, you have to be very careful to make sure you understand the, you, that the person reveals the full extent of the problem to get the, the complete story. And if you're not sure if the person really needs therapy, you can call the therapist and consult with the therapist and discuss it together or send the person for a one-time consultation. You don't have to worry about the therapist being subjective, looking for business. Unfortunately and tragically, most of the experienced therapists in the firm community have way more patients they can possibly ever handle if they work 24 hours a day. So you don't have to work. There's no Nisayan in this field. It is the responsibility of all elements of our community, Rabbanim, Mechantchim, and therapists, to work together to strengthen the Orthodox family so that firm children grow up in an emotionally healthy atmosphere. If we raise our children in an atmosphere in which affection and respect are plentiful, where the discipline is fair and loving, and the opportunities for self-expression are abundant, then, we will, then they will come to trust that the world is, a base, is basically a friendly and agreeable place. We can then hope to be zeiche, to see our children grow up, to be eivda Hashem, netay simcha, menuchas hanefesh, v'achavas hadas. Thank you. I'd like to address some of the questions. I think I'll have to review them with uh, Dr. Saratskin because I wasn't too clear on some of the questions. But let's, let's first deal with the case, and I think it's a chidosh la'alacha, but let me just deal with the case of children. And this is a case where I was, I was asked this question some time ago. I also discussed it with the doctor. Uh, a case where children who were abused by the parents. Now, I maintain that there's a difference as far as abuse is concerned. A kibbedave aim comes with nisyonis. And as the Gemara tells us in Kedushin Ad Heichen, kibbedave aim, the Gemara tells us where this, the, the, the mother of the Melech came and took, took off this chashiva begad and then spat at him. So the, the Taisus brings that she was a meturefa. She was, she was insane. So of course that has a lot to say with the son, the Melech, not really feeling that mother is embarrassing him. Maybe he felt a tinge of embarrassment, but we, everyone understood, because they saw she's a mature ethicist. But in a situation where a child was abused by a parent, I believe that it's, it's almost, in most cases, we know it's almost the person, it's worse than being a chola. A child to deal with a parent who sexually abused that child. It's almost as if to say that this child will never become a shukhra. 
You know, it's 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 something where the it's very difficult to to get the damage out, and if the person has to deal with the parent, there are very few people that can possibly do so. So certainly, when it comes to sexual abuse, I feel that it's not worse than a mitzvah, where most paiskim will tell you that a chol is putter from. We're talking about mitzvahs are saying now, just as there's the shear of a mitzvah at chonesh. It Losa says a different shir kol nechasef, but a mitzvah sasei is at chomish. So the poskim say when it's a question of being a chola, that it's the same thing. Being a chola is like at chomish, so that there's really no chiv. Now, now there are gradations of abuse. There's verbal abuse. There are other, all other kinds of abuse. There is another sniff to be matter because when a parent is a Russia, in sexual abuse, the parent has a din of a Russia. So in the case of a Russia, even though there are two days in Shulchan Aruch, which is all strange because Rav Rishonim disagree with the Rambam and they hold the, the Pashtas of the Gemara that there's no Chiyav Kibbedav by Oisem Aisa, The Rambam says there is a Chiyav. But there are many, the Bach is clear on this, that the Rambam only meant this, that it's a Darabonan. So again, we have an extra Kula, we have a Machlekes Rishonim, so, and we also have the cooler that it's only midrabanan so we can be maker as far as that's concerned. More, uh, in a situation of speaking to a therapist concerning these things, where perhaps, concerning these things, I'm not sp- speaking about the sexual abuse necessarily, but all these things where the therapist feels that by discussing these things, the, the, they can turn the patient around where the patient could acquire affection for the parent even though the patient has various tinnitus to the parent I believe the Makairas, the Gemara Sanhedrin where the Gemara speaks about a child taking a splinter from a parent where it could cause a chabura and the Gemara says a very interesting heta and the way Rashi explains it it means that's to my mind, this that the Pais can speak about, Lashon Hara L'Toelis, which is not limited to Lashon Hara. All Bein Adam L'Chaveira, L'Toelis is Mutter. When Bezdin beats someone up, they make fear for Asiyah Samitzvah. That's, you're not allowed to beat someone. It's not a special heta to Bezdin. When they give Malkus, the Torah says you have to give Malkus. But in all the Halachas of Kriya is the general, and it's not even a din in Bezdin. There's a Ketsais that the Ksais is the din of Kaifanes, such a Taitsanafshi is not even a din of Bezdin. A Chava can be Kaifa, his other Chava. That's a din of Latoelis. Indeed, the heter of a parent to, to hit a child is because it's Latoelis for the Hadrach of the child. That, the all they know the Machavero is Mutter when it's Latoelis. That's why a parent really has to hit a child, Lashem Shemayim. And from that Gemara you see, and it's a suffix, but from that Gemara you see that Kibbadavim has this din of an Emlachavere. So this, of course, there are many, many other stories to be mata, but I feel it's certainly Mutta Bechai Gavna. One more thing uh, in the case, again, and this will depend on each individual case, where it's a case with people who have OCD or all these kinds of uh, hang-ups, shall we say, of super chumra in the Dukkah Mitzvah, of course, we know that the Ratz, not Beetle Mitzvah, we're not talking about Beetle Mitzvah, but we're talking about weaning them away from that because that's not Ratz and Hashem. The Rabbanu Shalom doesn't want that kind of... Uh, it reminds me, the Inyal Inyal, like Rav Naftali Rabshitzer once said, Chazal say, Kol HaSharem Nimelu Chutz Mishare Dimmer. Shari Dimmer, the doors, the Sharem of, of crying, Loi Ninalu. So he says, if Loi Ninalu, so when he needs Sharem, they're all together. So he said, because when a fool cries, Malachim come and they shut the doors. See, it really depends. These kinds of mitzvahs which are done, uh, the OCD mitzvahs, these types of mitzvahs, we know that's clearly not the Ratzon Hashem. The Sharem are close for that kind of an avoda. Um, I didn't catch if you, I'll gladly take other questions, but I'll gladly um, 
take other I'll take other questions please yes I'd like to comment on that. I'm glad you mentioned this because uh, I, I, uh, I think it's important for me to share something with you. Um, a few years ago, I don't know uh, where this doctor is. There was a doctor in Queens that uh, seemed to have been relatively successful with stammerers, stutterers and stammerers, where his cure had to do with having the person not speak for uh, quite some time and to reteach speech to these people seems he had a great deal of success and he had a lot of people that wanted to become his patients. But the Shiloh was, if they can't speak, all right, we can be Mahara, the Rabbanon, Krishna, you know, there are certain Mitzvah Shevadiba, you know, what, what do you do with those Mitzvah Shevadiba? So they, they asked a few Rabbanon who had found difficulty to pass, and they went to another Gadol who said to them, Avadit Smutu says, Aleben Zach. And they came to me, they say, what, what did he mean? They don't understand what he meant. So I explained it to them. It's similar to what we spoke about before. A lebenzach simply means that we're speaking now with bitl say. We're not speaking about being over say. When it comes to a mitzvah say, to speak well, that thing, that value is something which is tantamount to chole if a person won't do it. And the same thing is here. This is a lebenzach. Doing things in this manner is not correct. And it's something that makes for depression. It's the, the quality of one's spiritual life is diminished when one has this kind of a malady. So the heta would be when it comes to bitl say you don't tell them that this is not a mitzvah, of course. You have to be careful in what you say. Or else Chachman will find you like a mesis, a mesis not You have to say, in your situation, of course, best thing is Teskashaira. In your situation, I believe the halacha is, in your situation, people have to do mitzvahs. But you are doing, your lifestyle is totally wrong. This is not the way to do mitzvahs. Therefore, do kach v'kach v'kach. And each individual, according to the way you feel, has to be guided. Yes. I'll repeat the question, so, yeah. Uh, a teenager who's promiscuous, who's very frustrated and knows that if they're going to give this up, they won't be able to be mamala this taiva for many years, and it's very difficult. What is the question? Uh, I, in, in case, in case of, of uh, in case of teenagers, I would tell them. I wouldn't tell them stamuta, but I would tell them that masturbation is a lesser evil. That's what I would tell them. It's a psak from the shlach kaddish. This psak, not in the case of the teenager, but this. This equation is the is the is the psak of the shlach kaddish. Yes. Yeah. 